<laughs> Hi, welcome to Adagio for Things. This week, there's a dog in the background. <laughs> Adagio for things. Uh, we're your hosts. I'm Will. Spencer, present. I'm Michael. Uh, this week we've got a great interview uh, for you with composer John Ziner, who's got a lot of cool stuff coming up. Uh, he's been uh, getting orchestral music recognition all over the place, and he's just a really interesting guy. Uh, so stay tuned for that. For those of you who are new to the show, we each episode we... Uh, talk about an issue in concert music, and then we interview uh, a new living composer each week. We also have a Spotify playlist that has every piece of music that we mentioned during the course of the show. So if there's anything you don't know about or want to hear more of, uh, you can check that out there. Just search for Loudbox on Spotify or click the link in the show notes. On today's show, we're going to talk about the claim that classical music is dying and whether or not that claim is actually what's causing the most harm to this kind of music and how people get to enjoy it. Okay, so where this is coming from is there's always these articles every once in a while from some publication that's going, is classical music dying? Who can save it? I wonder, could the newest rising star of the whatever place be the one to take classical music back into whatever all these different things is it dying is it dying is always the imagery <laughs> always like what's the cancer that's slowly invading classical music what's what's choke- the cancer joke right what's right cho- on track what <laughs> um, <laughs> oh my God. what has crafted a kill room with lots of plastic crap over the walls and is <laughs> muffled so that no one can hear classical music screams from the street. Oh, is that the new Addis God. Opera? Kill Room? <laughs> that would be great. A, a, like a meta opera about somebody killing classical music. Oh, wow. That's really deep. It's a serial killer who like... All right. We should end this. We should just stop here. <laughs> we got it. Um. <laughs> so to share... If you type in why classical into Google, the very first suggested search is why classical music is dying. Did you? I also tried this with a couple other genres and did not have the same result. Why would you have why? Well, if you search why jazz, I think you get like. No, why jazz is dying is the first thing I got. Oh, maybe people just like. And then I have why jazz happened. I think that's what I saw first. Like That was number three after why jazz. <laughs> Wait, here's a question, though, I do want to ask. Why are all these articles I'm finding... All of these articles are, like, at least a couple years old. Well, they come out every two years or so, it seems. Like, they're not so frequent, but... Well, probably each publication... They're regular. Each publication uh, authors one, like, every two years. So. I would say that's about right, yeah. Yeah. That's such a weird schedule. I well, found a... There's multiple from New York Times, Washington Post, New York Magazine, the New, like, all... Any publication that is widely distributed has these, then they date way back. Um, so, so, so you have you have to wonder if if, if maybe like, this is right. There, enough maybe people are talking is... about this. It, there, what what's to this? So I guess that's what we're gonna. Why do people think this is kind of the first 
question that we have to examine here. So like we all kind of took a look at what this might be, what might be going on with this. Great question, Will. Uh, <laughs> I'm happy I'm to. Leaving in all I'm of that. Happy to address <laughs> this. Okay, no, this is serious. <clears throat> we're talking about something that's died. It's not funny. We don't know if it's dead. That's why we're conducting an <laughs> autopsy. Sometimes it's funny. Wait, but if we're doing an autopsy, doesn't that mean it's pretty <laughs> yeah. much dead? No, we're 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 sick. <laughs> we want to watch classical music squirm that's why we have this podcast wow we are getting dark yeah, we are can we retroactively make this the halloween episode absolutely <laughs> this is pretty scary yeah. again this is subjective in terms of like my experience going to concerts and, and speaking with others but i think that the biggest indicator is it seems to be declining audience sizes uh, specifically, I think mostly from larger established organizations. I feel like the smaller concerts and smaller organizations can they can pack a house for like a a new music concert. But I think when you're looking at ticket sales for uh, you mean specifically like new music groups? Yeah, because I feel like a lot of it's very communal. So you'll have you know you can not that there aren't people that are generally interested in wanting to go, but you definitely have a, a group of peers that want to support each other. So those those type of things tend to sell out, but. It seems very skewed towards one end of the spectrum for what classical music is. A big focus is on trying to increase an audience size. And a big part of that audience size is, you know, young adults to older, near elderly adults. With the older generations, you're going to have a built-in audience. Most We've, of, we've got them in the bag. Got them they're, in the bag. They're on the train. The geriatrics yeah. are... On, on the on the bandwagon with this, they can't get off the bandwagon. They can't get off without, without help. Yeah. It's it's the only public public place quiet enough for them to sleep. That is true, and no one's going to wake you because no one wants to be that. Because that's bad concert etiquette. As as impolite as it is to clap in between movements, it's rude to wake a sleeping <laughs> person. No, that just won't fly. You get escorted out for that. Yeah. Where it gets problematic is when you're trying to recondition adults to begin appreciating a genre that they haven't had a lot of experience with is a very, very tricky thing to do. So I think that one of the key approaches would be earlier education. So more music education at an earlier age in schools, in the curriculum, which is a somewhat whole separate topic. It's been by the wayside for a long time. Yeah. Right. Because there's no, like, so we've got this aging audience problem in air quotes because a lot of people just aren't haven't been introduced to this whole world of music for the last 20 or 30 years exactly right it's just some obscure thing that maybe maybe you have some idea in the back of your mind that it would be positive to to check out like i should go to the ballet or go see a play or like read yeah i should like (laughs) read that novel that but like most people don't do it because most people are lazy and they don't have a built-in appreciation i think in researching this episode, the most annoying thing I found was um, all the all, all the articles opining on ways to reinvent classical music or attract new audiences by, I mean, put, putting the putting the onus on the actual institutions because everyone everyone can see that no one cares about it. I mean, the, the average right, person. So maybe that's more what the, it is. Is well, that it? You see. <clears throat> Not so much that people don't care, but you see that people don't know. 
Yeah, people don't people don't know. I mean, I think for a lot of people, they don't even know that composers or poets or authors are, are like operating currently. Right. Yeah. Like I've heard people use the phrase a modern day poet. What is that? There, I mean, there are lots of modern day poets. The last poet didn't die in the 1800s. Whenever you say mo- a modern day something, it Im- totally implies that this does not and maybe shouldn't exist yeah. anymore. Or it's like an anomaly. It's a yeah. magical yeah. person yeah. that was transported. Yeah. It would be interesting. a modern day knight in shining armor. Right. A modern day plague doctor. Right. A, a, a modern day philologist. Okay, so I mean that's just that just illustrates exactly how how absent classical music and the arts are from people's lives but at the same time and we've said this on the podcast before is if you ask many of those same people like uh do you enjoy film music when you're watching a movie or just in general do you like you can even say john williams or or maybe even some other people and they'll or hans zimmer (laughs) and Asterisk. <laughs> Where's my check? Where's my check? What's that from? Hmm? I don't know. It's from all oh. of them. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, like some choir just yelling at you. Um, but, but anyway, okay, so, if you ask people like if they like film music, they'll go like. Oh, yeah. I, a lot of people will say, I really enjoy that. So an argument for another time. But at some level, there's plenty in common that if somebody enjoys that, they would likely enjoy a lot of what concert concertized orchestra music or chamber music has to offer. Well, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what that's that's what I've always thought about. I mean, people love John Williams. And if you love John Williams, then you probably would love Shostakovich and, and Mahler and Ravel and, and yeah. all the people yeah. he's... He's taking from. Um, I think a lot. Some of the problem too is that just because of the way you, it's very insulated and you focus very highly on it, and you exist in a community that works together constantly. And so, I think a lot of people involved in classical music don't understand how little a lot of people know about it. And that's not to say that people don't have the capacity or aren't engaged in, to some extent. There's just a lot of, you know, if you put a player in front of some people and said, like, go for it, just talk about what you do, they would start talking about Stravinsky and Sostakovich, like people know what that's all about. But I, a lot of people might know the name, but they don't have, they don't know when that person lived. They don't know... I mean, coming from that world myself, until I started studying it midway through college and grad school, I had no inkling that Shostakovich lived in the 20th century. Well, I, I came across an article that there's uh, someone from The Guardian went out and surveyed uh, kids in London and found that more, more kids knew that Beethoven was deaf than could explain anything about his music. Of course. But... Again, this is actually a pitfall that a lot of these articles take or fall into, excuse me. And it's really oddly common is they cite kids. Like I was reading another one from the New York Times. Yeah, this is from the New York Times in 2012. The article is called, uh, Is Classical Music Dying? (laughs) Literally what we're talking about. Exactly this article. And the opening line is, 
A schoolboy recently asked me if Richard Wagner, excuse me, if Richard Wagner was a pitcher for the Yankees. At that moment, I feared that classical music in America was doomed. <laughs> okay. I, I love these. Here's I the problem. Like... When was the last time you gauged any other aspect of anything off of the opinion and knowledge base of a child? Of a little kid? I mean, well, you I... went up to that little... If you went up to a little kid and you said, excuse me, um, do you know the difference between a girder and an I-beam? <laughs> and the little kid went... Are those Lego blocks? You'd be like, we're all fucked. <laughs> all the bridges are going to collapse. Dying. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's. I think that's very fair. But I don't. I, again, I don't buy the argument either because I mean, all right, the kid didn't know who Richard Wagner was, but I mean, they doesn't. That's not an indicator necessarily that they haven't been exposed to yeah. other classical music. I mean, I'm sure plenty of kids don't know yet who the Beatles yeah. are, or they don't know yet who. Well, some people, kids, some little kids probably don't know yet who Michael Jackson was. They probably don't know yet, I hope, who Prince was. I think one of the core things about this is that it's just the messaging that these kinds of articles put forward. Like the whole classical music industry, if you want to call it that. Classical music, well, let's say industry because it includes recording labels and institutions like orchestras and stuff and musicians themselves. Yeah. The classical industrial complex. Yeah, the classical industrial complex. If only we had a Halliburton of classical music. Well, it is uh, brought to us by many people who are on the boards of, of Halliburton. Halliburton and Raytheon <laughs> and every one of those well, companies. Anyway, that's an issue for another day. Uh, constantly putting forward this kind of imagery of like, oh, classical music's on its last leg. Oh, nobody gives a crap about it is something that's obviously going to turn people off. And so it it has this whole problem of the people who are supposed to care most about it trying to entice people to come to it by saying like hear me out please just give it five <laughs> yeah, minutes give it four minutes give it four needy. minutes uh if after three minutes you're really upset i'll let you go that's exactly what canvassers do on the sidewalk i used to be one <clears throat> and it's terrible part of the problem is this idea that it's that it's dying that it's going belly up well, it's like it makes no other genre of music is to the same extent trying to rally so much of its fans i guess by going you better come together closer and and more uh, affirmatively or we're all going to be sunk and everyone else is going this shit i made is really cool and everyone's going to love it check it out there's like no confidence in what they're doing and that's obviously going to make people go oh there's no value in this why would i go check mm -hmm. it out if yeah. i do check it out it'll like you said spencer be because it's something i should have gotten around to because it'll uh enrich my my brain yeah well, whatever case, that means i don't actually care about yeah. it and well, so and so for the people that the outreach concerts do reach it's their only exposure to classical music is like this lame, impotent attempt to convince you to take part in this thing that you like even it. even they think yeah even the presenters think isn't relevant and it's dead. So I think that's that's a really good point in terms of like the the kid not knowing who Richard Wagner was, and I agree. I think that it doesn't necessarily it's not an indicator of the the issue as a whole. I think it does play a little bit into the the concept of not having the, the music education starting at an early age. But 
to be fair, it doesn't mean that that individual hasn't or that that child hasn't had exposure to classical music. That just might be a composer they haven't had experience with just yet. So mm-hmm. it's hard to judge in that case, but I do think that I do much very much agree with you that it's a little bit alarmist to base the inter- you know one interaction with one person, even though there could be a, a a larger issue at hand. But then to go and make the bold claim that all classical music is going down the toilet. Yeah, I think you're right. Like it's it. It doesn't deny your point at all. To was it? did did he say what this like what kind of school he was he was at or no he just like, it's like it's a completely baseless one two sentence anecdote at the beginning of an article and that was it I read you the extent of it but that's that's so dumb and it and is dumb wh- why why do you it's like, an opinion article that, which are already garbage so like but, but when you read that why do you get the sense that. Uh, He's like somehow blaming the kid. I know, right? I mean, right? It is. It's a little like bit. It's the it's a little kid's bit fault for not knowing who Wagner was. On top of all this, just like piss poor excuse for argument. Like most of these articles do a terrible job of arguing their case, um, and their case is stupid. And their case is stupid in general. <laughs> And they were all we've paid to, to reveal, argue that stupid case. We've waited to reveal our actual opinion until 20 minutes into if the episode this tell. week. Awesome. Well done, everybody. Um, on top of all this, none of these people present, or very few of these people present solutions to what they think this problem is. And I'm putting this problem in big air quotes. Mm. Only a few people put forward solutions, and most of the time they are dumb as shit. The solutions are stupid because their 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 reading of the problem is so is so shallow to begin with. Um, They're just going like people don't like it. Well, <laughs> yeah, as if, as if everyone got together one day and decided <clears throat> to not care. So no one puts forth any sort of systemic solution. Well, I'm sure. What am I, what am I I'm sure about? some people are doing that work, <clears throat> oh, and those are great people. But the people writing these articles are not promoting those efforts at mm. all. There are some people who have made suggestions as to how to revitalize dying classical music. In particular, we have a New York Times article with Zachary Wolf, Anthony Tomasini, Michael Cooper, Karina Defonseca Volheim, and David Allen. All people. The dream team. The Wrecking Crew. <laughs> the Wrecking Crew. <laughs> um, this, this is that's just all the music critics from the Times, right? This, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Basically, they're all people who get paid to write for the Times, and they all got together and uh, got really drunk and took peyote out in the <laughs> desert and <clears throat> said, "We're gonna we're gonna figure out the aging audience's problem." So there are like twelve ideas, and I, I they're not numbered. It's not a cool listicle. So they're like little mini articles. Yeah, they're oh, little mini articles. Yeah. Oh. It's it's just it's just them brainstorming. So it's, we'll, let's it's put a link to that in the in the episode description. First, uh, <laughs> first up to bat, because <laughs> it's just so it's just so stupid. Okay, treat the young like royalty. Court the <laughs> court court the young even more. Give opera goers in their teens and twenties not just the best seats at cheap prices, but also steep discounts at the intermission bar. I mean, I wouldn't mind that in general. Create <laughs> exclusive <laughs> access to rehearsals, meeting with directors and singers, and trips 
uh, to performances elsewhere. No, that all that's going to do is actually, it's just going to engage the people who are already going. Hey, do you want to hear some list? Who's list? Uh, we're going to give you a free intro with the conductor. <laughs> who's list? Uh, you can also meet the, the pianist. <laughs> who's list? Like, it's not going to work. Well, and it also... James Levine's lawyer will do your nails. Uh-huh. <laughs> Whoa, cool. I'll take 10. Who's what list? am I buying? <laughs> But I mean, there's like, free booze. I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It also sets you up for disappointment because you're going to turn 30 and they're going to be like, sir, you don't get the best seats anymore. It's oh, like, but we got you and now you're hooked. Yeah. Now you're a classical music yeah. aficionado. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> okay. Broaden the repertory. Granted, this mess, this Met season has been unusually narrow. The Met should start by edging more often into Eastern Europe. Janicek should appear every year and Mazorsky Prokofiev and Shostakovich deserve more occasion more than occasional outings. That's not a but, bad idea, but, but it's like, not going to help that problem. That's that's a criticism I've never heard of classical music. I don't know opera. I think opera is lame. And then you'd fire back with, "Yeah, but they're going to play Janáček this season." <laughs> <laughs> oh well, okay. Why didn't you start with that? <laughs> you should have told. You should have told me it was Janacek. 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 That sounds filthy. Um, how many of these? There's 12 of these? Okay. All right. I'm, I'm going to skip the cogent ones. Anthony Tomasini. <laughs> Let's only do the ones that feed in our argument. There, no, Spencer, there are no some, one's listening. There Let's are do some, this. <laughs> oh, there are some that make sense. I don't Maybe know. I don't know. that's our tagline. No one's listening. <laughs> <laughs> Signing off from nowhere, uh, Anthony Tomasini suggests uh, encourage clubs, go to the Columbia Law School Opera Club, and, and he said, well, why don't we just offer them a big discount? All right, that makes sense. All right, Sunday performances, that makes sense. Artists in residence. These are already things people do, though. These there, aren't there are solutions. That... These are just lists of things that people do. Okay, but there are a couple good ones. Let me just get to the, let me, let me get to the good ones. Gut the Restaurant. Why is it that audiences linger after performances at, say, the Park Avenue Armory while they rush out of the Met? It's because there's no comfortable, exciting space at the Opera House to sit down, chat, have unexpected run-ins. My idea? Throw out the overpriced, mediocre, grantier restaurant and, and replace it with something like the Smith across Broadway. I have three issues with this. Uh, well, they're not really issues. I have three points. One, they are correct for those for anyone who doesn't live in New York— there is no good food or drink near the net that is not crazy expensive and doesn't close like right before a show gets out. For some reason, they all close at like oh yeah, because we had that nine twenty nine. Yeah, there will be blood. We could not find a restaurant. Yeah. Point number two, the Grand Tier restaurant is like a part of kind of the imagery of the Met. It's kind of it's part of the whole package. It has this like the Met is supposed to be a huge resplendent amazing building like you could just go to see the building there's a little mini museum down on the first floor it's really cool you don't have to just go for the opera it's really awesome so there's a great there's a really good restaurant there that people can go to and it's part of the whole experience i know a few people who've been on like a really special occasion and they said it was a lot of fun point three the smith sucks (laughs) Don't try to be like the Smith. It's not, it's just like 
But again, that's a situation where it's <clears throat> you're, it's it's not addressing the problem because if it was something that warranted people wanting to mill around and talk, people are going to mill around and talk. They're not going to care where it is. I mean, how many times have you gone to like an event where they have to kick people out because people are still hanging around talking about it? These are all perks. These are not solutions. Exactly. I would be embarrassed that's to commit that to, to paper. Be more inclusive, more often. The holiday presentations of family-friendly operas, shorter and in English. Oh, Should be one of, the, one of oh. those we half agree with. <laughs> oh, but that's not her point. Oh. None of these people say, why don't you just put more productions in English? Maybe that could be a barrier for some people. With clap all you like rules... <laughs> You can bring your kids and your babies can cry. And that's fine. I do. I will have to say, I do kind of agree with the... um, Well, we've toyed with those ideas before. Kind of, of, yeah, taking apart the the social norms in a concert hall. I I think it's helpful. So it's more the tone that they're conveying this with. They're going like, allow it once in a while so that the dregs can come in. Yeah. Why don't we... Why don't we take... clap whenever you want. Why don't we take opera and make it, um, you know accommodating to people who otherwise would have gone to Chuck E. Cheese and they can just come here. <laughs> Why don't we put in a ball pit? I, I go to the a opera, there's pit? never a ball pit. What? In, in this in this year's run of Magic Flute, Papagena will be replaced with the Hamburglar. <laughs> <laughs> I would love a Grimace opera. I'm serious. I would totally go see a Grimace opera. <laughs> Okay. She also goes on to say, <laughs> send choristers in costume out to the lobbies to pose for selfies. No. Oh my God. None of these Again, are... this only and engages people less. who are already there. <laughs> That's the thing. These, none of these right. are bad ideas. On top ideas. of it being... No, that one's stupid. Well, <laughs> but it's a bad okay. Idea. But on top of it being kind of corny, it also has no impact on anyone That's the who's thing. not yeah, It's not addressing there. the problem. Here's a good one. Make it affordable. It already. Oh, this is a point I would like to bring up. It already is. There are tickets that are not affordable, but you can easily, on not very good seats, spend double going to a football game or to a baseball yeah, game. Yeah, it's it's and an unimportant baseball game to boot than you would going to the opera. I mean, yeah, or going if- to New York Phil or something. That's not to say that, in your opinion, in anyone's opinion. The orchestra or the opera has to be better than baseball or whatever. No. It's just saying that that <clears throat> argument is bullcrap. The image is that it costs a crap ton of money, but the most expensive ticket at the Met is nowhere near as expensive as the most expensive ticket at a Yankee game. No. Behind home plate at a Yankee game could easily cost, what, $1,000? It's a lot of money. I should actually look it up. The most expensive ticket I think they have is, which is a lot of money, is like 400 bucks. Home plate can range... Just for my cursory research, can range between five hundred to twenty five hundred dollars. The most frustrating thing going through all of these, all of these idiotic solutions, no one talks about. I mean, sometimes you talk about education, I guess. I haven't, I haven't seen any of these people talking about class. If your family only makes forty thousand dollars a year, then you probably aren't gonna take. 200 bucks and bring your whole family to go and try something that you don't even know you're going to like. Mm. But again, I think it also, not to keep being biased on my point, but I think that can again tie into early education because if you have people that are getting an appreciation from early age, then you might say, 
yes, a part of my disposable income is worth going to spend towards going to see it. I think part of what all this comes down to is the awful, awful messaging that these kinds of articles put forward. Uh, Because if you actually look at the numbers, classical music is no more dying today than it was 10 years ago, than it was 50 years ago, than it was 300 years ago. Uh, These articles that keep popping up have been fixtures of different newspapers and magazines stretching back decades just with people going like oh i don't know what they're gonna do and we've always figured it out and it basically amounts to this kind of group whining session of like it's hard to make money or it's hard to be successful and yeah that's because it is if it was easy everybody would be successful well, I th- we I think all found this thing back yeah. that it's from like 1680, 1683 is the year. I just I found it in my notes. Kristoforo Ivanovich. Profits at the door, the basis of business investment, instead of growing, are diminishing, evidently endangering the continuation of this noble entertainment. They're not making any money, so they're not going to be able to keep doing what they're doing. There, there is no future for this art form. And here we are, 350 years old. Well, it was, it was never popular music. The main mistake that all these people are making is that they're asking if classical music is dying. And that's why it has, again, giant air quotes, is becoming less popular. It's not becoming less popular, and therefore it's not dying. It's just that for the last 40 years, we're coming to, the terms with the fa- coming to terms with the fact that we have to compare it to the overwhelming success of pop music. Which, like we said before, is specifically designed to appeal to as many people as possible, which is a fine pursuit. These pieces are designed to be individually the best pieces they can be to put forth some idea or convey a specific message, not necessarily to appeal to as many people as possible. When you're trying to compare it to something that is meant to bring in 50 or 100,000 people at a time and get them screaming and dancing for an hour while you're on stage and wondering what the problem is with your music when your intended venue only holds 2,500 people, of course you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Well, and, and not just, and not just that <clears throat> the most popular forms of media, pop music has uh, saturated and opera classical music have, have not. Yeah. It's I mean, a separate they, they, genre. It's a separate venue it's a separate it, it is just doesn't exist in yeah. this. it's a false well, the, it's false it's a false comparison which is why it seems so impossible to overcome the issue of it ever being as again air quotes popular as pop music the the project of art is not to be as commercially viable as it possibly can be no. but i think the mistake a lot of these people are making is they they are under the illusion that there is some possibility that it could be popular in some comparable sense. I was looking at the Twitter followers for different artists, in, mainly in classical music. The most popular person I could find, or in, I looked up institutions and stuff as well, Gustavo Dudamel, who's the conductor for the LA Phil, has 800,000 followers on Twitter. Uh, the, high, the I think the highest follower count for an orchestra was Berlin Phil, and they had, I think, 216 
thousand hmm. followers. Mm-hmm. Nicki Minaj has twenty five million followers. So it's obviously just a different game. Now, part of this has to do with how people communicate in one world and one sphere of music versus another and what goes into it in terms of publicity and you know total saturation exactly the there's, a, there's a whole lot to unpack in that but it just to give you an idea of these really don't have as much to do with each other there's and no way that they're going to uh occupy the same cultural space and that's okay because the quality of the music isn't judged based on its popularity not to say that it can't be popular and in popular music it's not necessarily based always on its quality but on how many people enjoy it to some extent which is not to say that it can't also have quality so it's just again it's kind of like a false argument and that's what's generating this little not so little existential crisis Mm -hmm. that classical music's been going through maybe we should leave it there yeah i think so For today's episode, I had the chance to sit down with John Ziner. John is a composer who writes music that, regardless of what you've heard about contemporary classical music, is still lyrical and expressive and explores his own personal experience. Even with all this going on, he's somehow still able to compose things that have a fresh and fascinating sound that really enthrall listeners. Even though he uses a modern musical language and techniques, you can still hum his stuff. Full disclosure, John is an incredibly close friend of mine. That being said, we still write extremely different music. It's always fascinating to hear how John might have listened to the exact same piece of music that I did and come away with a completely different impression. We're talking with him today in anticipation of his new piece, Resonant Bells, being performed by the Minnesota Orchestra in January. During the interview, we talk about how the piece is inspired by Poe, the influence of New York City on John's music, his deepest musical influences, and, of course, baseball. The interview went a little differently than usual, just because John and I know each other so well, we were at a little bit of a loss in this weird context of an interview. Uh, Apologies for any dog noises that you hear as well, but the end result proved to be a really fun and interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, hi. Hi. <laughs> we don't really do introductions on here, so it can just be like kind of... That's good. I, whatever. Introductions are... Yeah, I just always... introduce it as like me. Mm-hmm. So what I was going to say before yeah. is like standing in the kitchen trying not to talk about things, but because it was you, it was like... <laughs> it felt like we were waiting for surgery or something. <laughs> we were just like... <laughs> Ginger... How do you normally get through these if she's like, or she she's usually chill? She's usually really chill. I we actually have dogs in my notes. It just says dogs. We can't, we can't help ourselves. <laughs> so how are your dogs? Charles Ives and uh, Josephine. Josephine. Uh, did you name the dog before or after you were involved with the, the Charles Ives festival? I think it was before... It was before I was officially involved, but like 
I was, you know, I showed up every summer and I had mm-hmm. written a piece for them at some point. So I wasn't like officially working for them in any capacity, but. But it was on the brain. It was on the brain. Yeah. yeah. Are you, you were a big Charles Ives fan. I never really appreciated Charles Ives until I was older. Like in college, I think I heard the unanswered question. And I think that piece was like, what is this mysteriously beautiful, weird, like wind off stage solo trumpet going on? Like, what is this piece that makes me question my very existence? That is a cool piece. That's like, if, yeah. I mean, if you if don't, that's how you get if that's how you get into it, I think that's the best. Way. Yeah, I mean, piece, yeah. it's like if if you're used to a more like traditional sound world, then you want to kind of because a lot of his music is it's very hard to latch on to something. And with that piece, it's well, it's usually like four pieces of music at once. Exactly. Yeah. I, very, I mean, completely. Yeah. yeah. But that piece, it's it is it's sort of like three pieces going on at once, but they're done in such a way that makes it kind of easier to follow and that was my first foray so to speak into not foray but i, I, I was trying it. to decide whether or not to say <laughs> that <laughs> so luckily you took care of it you bit music the nerd pun yeah yeah great was ives a new yorker or was he from always from connecticut he no he was from danbury right he was from danbury but he worked in new york so he took yeah. like the equivalent i it probably was metro north i mean you've been essentially a new yorker even if not spending all your time in the city right for your whole life yeah i mean i grew up very close i was born in the city and i grew up very close to the city and then ever since college it's been you've been here new york new york yes yeah do you yeah. find the city kind of gets to you over time or like being having been here forever doesn't like make you immune to it no (laughs) oh really so i i don't know if i've ever asked you this Mm -hmm. as someone who lived here and is part of this area Mm -hmm. and even into your time starting at nyu did you ever see yourself and if so when doing what you do now at the level you're doing it i was at NYU for undergrad, and I went to see the Juilliard Orchestra. This was, I think, my freshman year of undergrad. I went to see the Juilliard Orchestra at Carnegie Hall, conducted by John Adams. To this day, he's one of my favorite living composers, and I, I love his music. But freshman year undergrad, John was like, really i love your music so much that i waited outside of the backstage of carnegie hall while like all these juilliard students who were like my age were coming out because they were playing the concert and i waited and john adams came out and i was like you know i had my program and i was like shaking in my little like (laughs) freshman sneakers you know and like you know i was like can, can you sign my program, Mr. Adams? Like, I'm a huge fan. And then, like, he was like, oh, a fan, you know? Like, what is this kid doing? <laughs> they like, don't make those for this right, kind of music. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I, like, you know, and I got his autograph, and I was, like, so excited. And But I think the point is, is did I expect 
that I'd be at Juilliard four years later? Absolutely not. I mean, I was, I just wasn't ready for it at that point. I was definitely on the outside kind of looking in, hoping maybe one day like I could be at a level where I could do that. And, you know, I like worked my ass off for the next three Mm -hmm. years and like I, you know, it worked out. And and you'd been doing that for a while. Like you've been of a composer mindset or into orchestral music for basically forever. I mean, yeah, I, I didn't start writing seriously until high school, but like my parents always were like, yeah, John, you were like, you know, pounding your fists on the piano when you were like three. So like you were writing then and I was like, okay, you know. But, it's John Cage. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Part of the, what this show is, is giving people a view into like what a composer is mm-hmm. or who they are and what they do. So like, what does that, outside of the music, what does that encompass? Like, do you... I have my like hobbies and likes and, you know, every summer it's like baseball <laughs> from like <laughs> April to, <end>. to October, <laughs> you know, it's like every day. I mean... So baseball. Baseball. Dogs. Dogs. You know, I, I always say I like to cook, but then, like, I have other friends who like to cook and are, like, probably better cooks than I am. Thank you. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, like, it's... Sometimes I'm like, I like to cook, and then I like, you know, it's... It is what I... You know, it is See, what that, it is. That's just because I refuse to, to work after five. <laughs> see i can't i can't help that i'm just like your piece is gonna be late i'm sorry <laughs> do you think of your music as being in a particular style and if you do what is it mm-hmm. or do you think that it's like kind of an irrelevant thing right now i do actually believe that it's irrelevant because I, I mean, okay, I'll answer it this way. Yes, I think there are clearly there are styles that appear in my music. But we live in a time and we're writing in a time where it's irrelevant. I, I believe. Mm-hmm. Because, like, there's so many composers doing so many different things. And not one thing is right and one thing is wrong. And I think that we often get caught up on kind of trash talking of these like other styles and like it there's no like even though they don't really exist they don't i mean it's like you can do whatever you want and say whatever you want musically i just i think that it really doesn't matter are there particular styles that you do feel have more of an influence on your music than others? I mean, certainly I my f- one true love in music, I would have to say, is like romantic 19th century music. So no matter how away from that it gets, like it's still that's always going to be there, mm-hmm. I think. What's interesting about it, though, to my ear, it's mm-hmm. like you found a way to take those impulses, like the the romantic mm-hmm. era sentiment and kind of goals with what you want your music to do. But it's like filtered through all these 
tools yeah. and mechanisms and things from the last Absolutely. 50 years and all that stuff. So you get something that's really emotive, but it still has all these like things you've never heard before. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, thank you for saying such nice things. <laughs> I just kind of said what it was. I didn't say I liked it. <laughs> but I, I mean, I remember, I realized when I was at NYU that I needed to say kind of my own thing because when I got there, I was writing like pseudo Haydn. Haydn? Oh, yeah. So you're like, like slowly progressing through all of music history. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Eventually we'll we'll go to the future. But Yeah. <laughs> but um next so you're going to start turning into like full out cowl or cage, yeah. you know. And then you'll become Steve Reich. Exactly, right. Exactly. Where do you hope that not just your music, but classical music in general mm-hmm. or new classical music mm-hmm. in general is headed mm-hmm. right now we're at this kind of a drift place where like you said anybody can kind of do anything there isn't really a set doctrine or style or anything that's particularly in is there something that you hope to see people kind of exploring more and more i honestly hope that as musicians we become more open-minded to other styles just like i'm i hope that human beings can be more open-minded to different human beings they're basically one and the same thing but where do i think it's heading i really could not answer that i think it really depends on how the bigger organizations like orchestras or whatever they start handling things like programming or like concert format stuff, or, you know, even, um, you know, where the concerts take place. There's, there's so many, I, I think, ways of evolving concert music. Um, and I don't think any of those ways involve its death, as so many people have, you know, prophesized. But I I think that there's, you know... So you see a future. Of course I see a future. And I don't think I would be doing this. Like, I don't think I would want to do this in any capacity, whether it be writing music or teaching or whatever, if I didn't think that. That being said, I do feel like I could hear a piece written 200 years ago, and even though it was written 200 years ago... To me, it still feels like, or potentially it could feel as relevant as it ever was. You know, maybe it's more relevant now than it was when it was written. Do you also feel that way about the orchestra as a body? Yeah. You write a a lot for orchestra. You write very well for orchestra. It does very well. Do you write for it more? Do you focus on writing for it more because it's a sound that is in you and you really love it? Or is it also something that you feel is a a more relevant way to convey your musical ideas rather than chamber music or solo or those kinds of things? I think, honestly, I think we both could answer this question. And I actually, I think we both might Let's have... Let's do it at s- the same time. <laughs> Velociraptor. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but I, I, I think we'd have similar answers. Obvi- I, I don't think, I don't think orchestral music necessarily has more emotional power or anything that like, um, you know, chamber music couldn't achieve. I think you can achieve the, a similar level of you know, effectiveness, I guess, with a chamber group. But with an orchestra, it's more, I think, of a a statement in the sense that it's like more people are going to be there, more people are going to hear it. It's it's in a larger, whether it's a, an actual live venue or a recording, it tends to receive more views, you know, <laughs> like... And so it is a larger statement. It know? is. I mean, I mean, in in many senses of the word. Just thinking about it off the top of my head, it seems like you do maintain kind of. There's always a personal, mm-hmm. oh yeah, introspective side. But are there also kind of bigger issues that you don't put forth? I think in the past it used to be like way more a way more like personal thing because me and the romantics, you know, it's like. As I've gotten a little bit older and really take in the world and kind of like see how I want to construct my music and bring make it relevant, yeah, like, you know, I do find that the news or, you know, current events or those sort of things like definitely have maybe like a 50% of the reason behind a piece. And then the other 50% is a more, you know, personal thing or, you know, ev- I guess every piece is different. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you find not just the cultural or political surroundings influencing what you're trying to say, but also just where you are? Like, does New York kind of feed into your music at all? or Maybe in like the strangest way possible i wouldn't say like i'm influenced by like bustling city noises or you know like i tend to favor like more you know nature kind like i like that concept like nature concepts or um which is sort of funny you know so it's the opposite of what you've it is the opposite except like resonant bells in that case was influenced by New York, but in like a very like kind of circling around it kind of way. Because the Bells, the poem by Poe, he wrote while living in the Bronx. Oh, so is it actually a specific set of Bells? It's the Bells at Fordham University. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had no idea. So let's talk about this. So this piece, Resident Mm -hmm. Bells, is being performed by the Minnesota Orchestra mm-hmm. in January mm-hmm. as part of their Compose- Composition Institute. Yes. And the show's going to be open to the public, and mm-hmm. well, there will be details in the, the show notes and everything for people to check it out, of course. So they're doing this piece in January, mm-hmm. and it's a really cool thing to be one of the composers who gets to do this. It's a yearly program they run. I didn't know it was the Bells at Fordham yeah. University. So did he live near there? He lived there in the last two years of his life. He was originally from Baltimore. He lived in Baltimore. 
Um, but when his wife was got sick, they recommended that they move to like a the countryside basically. And the ironic thing was that in the 1840s, the Bronx was very much the countryside. He wrote the the bells because he lived fairly close to where Fordham was. I don't think it was called Fordham back then. It had a different oh. name. It was the Jesuit monastery. Something that like that. Yeah. But exactly. Um, so in, in that sense, the piece is very much inspired by New York, but from a sort of roundabout way. So it's interesting to me that you, in expressing things that are current and personal, you look back to someone like Poe. Mm-hmm. And I was looking through your bio, which was really weird. <laughs> Not that your bio, your bio wasn't weird. The reading your bio to be like, who is John? <laughs> or rather, who does John say John is? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I was really intrigued by the by you describing your music as having nostalgic lyricism. Because mm-hmm. I think that's a really good way to put it. And I hmm. was wondering if you could maybe talk about what that means to you. Specifically the nostalgia part. Nostalgia is something that I can't really put my finger on, but it's really important to me. I I lived in Brooklyn for a year in Williamsburg, and there was a roof on the apartment. And I remember sitting on the roof at night, looking at the city, and feeling this like intense feeling of sadness but also fondness of what had occurred there like in the past like this was my senior year of college so looking back on the previous three years and then I moved into Manhattan and there was a roof in Manhattan and it was like the opposite I was like in in it there was like oh I'm here it's okay we're in it you know it's like that's sort of how I like to think of like nostalgia. It's like this. You had like a great Gatsby thing for the city. <laughs> yeah, I guess. You know, it's like a, it's, it's all of the feelings at once. Is that, do you think that's sort of where like John Williams influence kind of ties in? Cause I know you've talked about Absolutely. that before. With me I mean, John Williams is the reason why I started writing music. Really? Basically. Yeah. Hmm. That's so interesting because, like, nor- so often you hear, like, John Williams discussed in the context of film music mm-hmm. and not as a living composer. It's mm-hmm. like the fact that he right. writes for film puts him in a separate category where it's not thought of that way. But it's, right. it's really, it, I find it really interesting that you latched on to that. So I'm going to admit something right now. Okay. Uh-oh. Because I've been queuing some of these questions. Uh-oh. And, like, leading them in a certain direction. <laughs> and you have deftly <laughs> avoided saying something. You might have seen me looking down at this chair. And it's because I've had a timer running to see how long it took you to bring up Mahler. <laughs> I can't, in good faith, go through an interview with you and not discuss... The influence of Mahler and his music on you, because for those of you listening out there, John is addicted to Mahler. 
I don't I don't know how to really answer that. I just think that the kind of the spirit of again with Mahler everything gets a little spiritual, I think, but for me the the spirit of that music, of his music is yeah, it kind of pervades like every decision that I make. I mean, I don't nec- I don't think my music really all the time sounds like that or is like trying to conjure up that kind of music. But just like, I mean, to me, he's like the greatest composer that ever lived because like nothing he did was wrong. Like (laughs) everything he did in his music makes perfect sense to me. So when I kind of, when I'm thinking about my own music, I try to channel decisions that he made. Like whether it would be like, this passage of music requires, you know, a five minute transition. Like I need to write. And of course I, you know, he was like, you're scaling things down a little bit. Oh, quite, quite, quite a bit, quite a bit. Uh, you know, for every, uh, 30 minutes of Mahler, Mahler's music, we'll just say like five minutes of John's music. Do you, as someone who's so deeply entrenched in that music, enamored, Enamored with that's a better way to put it. Most people would think have heard his name before and might associate him with the super, super long pieces mm-hmm. of music. Mm-hmm. When you think about classical music being these things that stretch on for ages mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's this kind of endless music, that's really Mahler that people right. are thinking about because he's sort one of the few people who really went that direction. Right. Is there anything that you might recommend to people for how to approach this music that is so long. great yeah but so lengthy is there a way to kind of let yourself in a little more easily when there is that barrier because it's an a totally fair mm-hmm. i believe a fair point absolutely about why it's difficult to get into mall before i realized what a, a great composer he was from a technical standpoint like kind of what i was just talking about I, the reason I loved it so much is because it connected with me on an emotional level first. That's one big reason. But if you think about like a movie, a traditional length for a movie is like 90 minutes, basically. Mm-hmm. Mahler symphonies are usually sh- a little shorter than that. You know, the longest ones are about that long, if not a little longer. I know that's a long time, but, you know, most of them are like 70 minutes, Mm -hmm. 75. So if you think of those works in a sense as almost like a movie or like a film for your ears rather than your eyes, you can get wrapped up in the plot, you know, in air quotes and the conflict in air quotes and the characters and you know, the the triumph or the the tragedy or whatever at various moments. And I realized that, like, that's kind of just inherently what Mahler is. Each symphony, as he described it, was a world. Do you find yourself working your way towards that kind of scale in your music at all? Do you find yourself trying to have the highest highs and the lowest lows in the same always piece. always okay so the last question that i ask 
every guest when I'm doing the interviews anyway, is what is your favorite non-classical piece of music? Hmm. I think it's probably like, can I, I might not have a specific song. You could say an album, I suppose. Hmm. It's so tough because as much as I love large orchestral music and like large scale classical music, I love like folk music. Like I love the kind of like acoustic guitar and voice, like the simplest possible. You mean like songwriter music. Songwriter music. But like I'm thinking like Simon and Garfunkel. Man, I had like money down that you were going to say Billy Joel. I do love Billy Joel. I know. That's I love I'm... Billy Joel, but I would say that, well, I don't know. I really do like Billy Joel. Yeah. I really like Billy Joel. <laughs> Maybe I should change my answer. No, you already stuck with it. I we know. can have this in too, though. Well, I think this brings us to the end of the interview. Oh, It was lovely having you here. Oh. <laughs> It was it, it was, was great having you here for the fourth time this week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I had uh, all the leftovers, the Thanksgiving yeah. leftovers, like last week, and but yes, it's it's always great to be here. Yeah, and I'm sure this won't be the last time that you're here in this capacity either. So, well, I I love I love the show. I'm glad oh, uh, glad I could be a part of it. Yeah, and. Hopefully, if we have anyone who listens out in Minnesota, that they will be there and say they heard you on here. Yes, looking, cool. looking very much looking forward to it. Thank you so much to John for sitting down with me for what was one of the most enjoyable interviews that we've done on this show. We're all really looking forward to hearing Resonant Bells performed in Minnesota on January 18th. If you live in Minnesota, you can go see it. Um, Or if you live somewhere else, uh, the concert will actually be streaming online live during the concert. John's music will be performed alongside the music of of several other amazing composers, all new pieces uh, and all performed expertly by the Minnesota Orchestra. Every year, these concerts produce amazing results. So definitely check that out. If you are stuck in New York City uh, or you're going to be in New York City, you can hear more of John's orchestral music because his newest orchestra piece is being premiered by the Juilliard Orchestra at Alice Telly Hall on February 28th. As always, if you enjoyed today's show, please go rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast listening. Uh, Those reviews specifically really help us boost the visibility of the podcast. So if you can leave just a couple of words saying, we really love this show, or this show is decent, or I listen to this sometimes, anything at all will really help uh, kind of boost our visibility to other listeners who can then discover some new music. Lastly, if you have any opinions about the stuff we talked about today or in any of the other episodes, or if you have suggestions for topics in the future, we would love to hear from you. Uh, either send us an email, which you can find listed on our website, uh, loudboxnyc.org, or send us a tweet or a Facebook message, or I guess you could send us a picture on Instagram, but that might be tricky. Um, regardless, we'd love to hear from you, uh, and we're looking forward to it. To wrap up today's episode, we've got one more piece of John's to leave you with. This is Transient Bodies, as performed by the New Juilliard Ensemble.
Thank <laughs> you.